Uh, that's brilliant. So some great hymns this morning, mind you. That, that did help. But fantastic. Let's read together, shall we, from the book of Romans. As you know, we're studying the book of Romans uh, through part of this year. Well, right through this year in different bits and pieces on different Sundays. And um, we've reached chapter 6. We're going to do it over this week and next week. So we'll read the first half of it right now, which is verses uh, 1 to 14 of Romans chapter 6. Let's read the verses, then we'll try to um, have a look at what they actually mean. So, chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead uh, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. I think actually rather than reading it all, we'll do it paragraph by paragraph because it is quite a, a detailed kind of, kind of uh, passage and you know when you read the whole of it at once it kind of washes over you and you don't get the sense of it. So let's just look at verses 1 to 4 first shall we and uh, see how that fits in. Now obviously it's in the midst of an argument it starts off what shall we say then and you think then what came before <laughs> and it was two weeks ago we did it last so you probably uh, uh, got vague memories of what happened you might not have even been here let's just talk about where we've been with Romans and what where we are in it right now we've done chapters one to four earlier on this year that's where the apostle Paul is speaking about the world's problem and God's answer one of the things we tried to say uh, through the series is this is a kind of Rolls-Royce letter of the New Testament. This is a big one that Paul had wanted to write for years, where he puts out in detail what the essentials of the Christian faith actually are. There are all kinds of letters in the New Testament, but this is the big one. If you get Romans in place, then you understand most of the others. And so he starts out by talking about the world's problem and the fact that underlying all of the many different problems our world has got, there is one basic problem, which is human failure, human inadequacy. And that's not because God has created us wrong. It's because the world, given the choice, has turned away from God in a million different ways. And God wants to bring us back to where we were created to be, to what he's always dreamt of human beings doing and, and being. And so chapters 1 to 4 talk about that and how Jesus is God's answer. Then we're now in this second section of the book, uh, which is chapters 5 to 8, which is about how God's answer works. How does somebody dying on a cross 2,000 years before you were born actually do anything for you in painting in 2022 what's the connection i mean i often get non-christians uh, saying to me and i bet stevie and the others that go out on on the streets and in the doors uh, find this too lots of people saying well you know i'm very grateful to jesus for dying for me and everything but you know i never asked him to and it seems a long way away and completely unconnected so how does that affect you? And in chapters 5 to 8, Paul starts talking about uh, how this answer works and what it actually does in our lives. And that, of course, is where we are right now. Here are just some of the slides from last time. Uh, we talked about where we are now, not in this series of talks, but where, where are we if we're Christians right now after the death of Jesus? We said there are three big results from chapter 5. Peace with God, access into grace, rejoicing in hope. And we said peace with God is about our past, our guilt, discomfort when we think about what we've done and what we've said and where we've been in the past that's swept away it's all forgiven and we know that God is not angry with us any longer we live at peace with him and uh, access into grace is about the present we get access into God's presence in a new way we come to know him he stays invisible but he becomes a part of our life we just can't get away from 
And uh, uh, as Steve was saying, it's a, it's a wonderful experience when that happens to you. Happy day when Jesus washes your sins away, your peace with God, and suddenly God becomes somebody you get to know better and better. And the third thing is rejoicing in hope, and of course that's about the future. There is more to come. <laughs> so that's who we are. Uh, right now, how did we get here? We talked a lot about that last time as well. It had to be the right time. It had to be done for people that didn't want it. God did it before we knew we needed it even. It had to be done by God. It had to keep us safe forever, not just for five minutes. It wasn't just a case of God saying, right, I've wiped out your past record. Now go off and don't do it again. Because I don't know about you, but I'd have lasted about three minutes, I guess. <laughs> Instead, we're safe for the future. And uh, it had to change us radically and place different people. All of that we looked at last time. That's all there in, in, in uh, chapter 5. And we said uh, that Paul points a contrast to between uh, being in one thing and in another. And we said right then, and this is two weeks back now, you know, in Mario Paul it was pretty disastrous. Even worse there this morning. And uh, Ukrainian people in Mario Paul, there's one of them in the picture there, were having a terrible time. But some of them had got over the border to something different. And that was a picture uh, that actually circulated around of people who've arrived in Moldova and are being looked after by Christians there who've committed themselves to going to the border and working 24-7 to help these, these uh, refugees find a better place to be. In Mariupol one, one, one time and then in Moldova shortly after that. And in the same way, there's a contrast in chapter 5 between being in Adam, which is the way we're all born, uh, ready to do all the wrong things, ready to disobey God, fully equipped to, to mess up our own lives for ourselves, and being in Christ, having accepted that he died for us so we can be forgiven simply by claiming the gift of eternal life from him. And uh, that goes on beyond this life too, and chapter 5 says, uh, no, it's not chapter 5, this is uh, also talking about in Christ. Since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. In Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And if, in this other chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's still talking about being in Christ and in Adam. And everybody dies. 100% of the human race dies because we're all born in Adam. And in Christ... Well, you may still die physically while you're here, but in Christ all will be made alive. And everyone who trusts the Lord Jesus will one of these days go on into an endless life because that's the difference it makes. Now, some people will say, that is absolutely scandalous. You mean you don't have to account for your own wrongdoings? It's all swept away, it's out of the question. That means you can, you can say, <laughs> God's forgiven me, my place is secure in heaven, I can do whatever I like from here on in. Right, okay, which bank shall I rob first? You know, and, and, and if that is the case, then Christianity is a pretty immoral religion. If you can live how you life and still be forgiven by God, then that's pretty immoral. And that's why I think so many people think that Christianity has got to be about putting in your bit. Thou shalt do this, thou shalt do that, thou shalt do the other. And only if you keep those commandments, only if you keep things dead right, can you ever hope to get to heaven. But then you've got no certainty, no surety. And I can't live up to the standards that God says I should live up to. I know I can't do it by myself. So if it's my contribution it depends on, I'm never going to get there. So what does this actually mean? This is a question that Paul's taking on here at the start of chapter 6. He's saying, does it depend on us or does it depend on God? Do we have to do something ourselves? And if we don't have to do anything ourselves, if we can just say, thank you, Jesus, there's my ticket to heaven. Okay, that's fine, it's my life, I can live it any way I want. Isn't that totally immoral? 
Well, that's the question he's addressing at the start. He imagines somebody saying, okay, I have read these verses in chapter 5 that say, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Huh, hmm. God likes showing grace, doesn't he? Okay, if every time I sin, God has to show more grace, and he likes doing that, then the more I sin, the more grace there will be, then everybody's happy. God's happy because he gets to go on forgiving me for more and more and more. I've committed another murder, Lord. Never mind, I forgive you. It's great, isn't it? Everybody's happy. That's not right, is it? That shouldn't be that way. And so the Apostle Paul says in the most um, uh, emphatic way he can say it in Greek, by no means. May it never happen. What it means. No chance. Christianity is not an immoral religion. And he gives three reasons why this is absolutely wrong. We mentioned when we were looking at chapter 3, this idea that you can do what you like is something that the, the mad Russian monk Rasputin uh, believed right back at the start of the 20th century. He said, you know, you can't be forgiven unless you sinned first. And so the more you sin, the happier God is. And he used that as an excuse for seducing people all around the, Roman, the, the, the Russian court and uh, getting drunk every night and basically living quite a scandalous life while claiming to be a very holy man. <laughs> It was great. Well, he got off with it. Mind you, somebody killed him in the end and buried him in the ice, but there you go. And uh, Rasputin was obviously wrong. He was a disgusting example of what a Christian is supposed to be. And so Paul says two things in chapter 6 that are important. First of all, we can't go on sinning as a regular way of life. If you are a Christian, there is no way you can do that all the time. He's writing to people in Rome who may have had pretty colourful careers so far. They've been involved in all kinds of things. And in Rome, the leading city of the Roman Empire, there are all kinds of creative ways to sin. <laughs> and many of them have been involved in a, a lifestyle that involved them in all sorts of debauchery and immorality. And Paul is saying to these people, you can't carry on. If you're a Christian, things have got to change. And that's the passage we're looking at this morning. Next week, we'll look at the second half of the chapter. And that's where he says something uh, a little bit different, which is even if you are living a lifestyle that's pleasing to God most of the time, you can't say, oh, look, I've sinned again. It doesn't really matter. You can't drop casually into sin from time to time. So he's saying, first of all, in our bit this morning, if you have got a new life in Christ, and that is running through your whole life and informing who you are as an individual moment by moment, then you cannot have a sinful lifestyle to go with it. Those two things just do belong together. And if you get that right, in the second half of the chapter, he says, if you've got a new life in Christ and a generally okay lifestyle most of the time, it's still not okay if sin sort of intrudes from time to time and you have moments when you say, oh, I've blown it again. Never mind, let's get on with it. Surely Christians will sin, but it's a serious matter. And you have to take it back to God and ask for his forgiveness and all the stuff we'll talk about next time. But right now, we're looking at the first of those things. You can't go on sinning as a regular way of life. Why can't you go on sinning as a regular way of life? Well, Paul has three things to suggest in this chapter. And one of them is in the four verses we said already. <laughs> the first thing is your death. He says, you are dead. That's a strange thing to say to people, isn't it? You're dead. No, I'm not. I'm, a, I'm breathing. I'm alive. I'm, I'm listening to every word you say. But he means dead in a special kind of a way. Later on, as when we read the second bit of this, verses 5 to 10, he says, the second reason you can't go on sinning as a regular way of life is your resurrection. That hasn't happened to you yet. Not totally. But you're alive in Christ in a new kind of a way. And that is important too. And there's a third reason 
as well, which is that because you go through this death and resurrection thing with Christ as a new Christian, that doesn't mean you still don't have to choose for yourself. And so the third thing is your choices. You are going to have to decide um, what you uh, are going to allow God to do in you. Will you let this whole new life thing really fill you as a person, or are you going to just clutch your ticket to heaven and live any way you want? That would be stupid. So, let's look at those three things. First of all, the verses we've read. Your death. Uh, how have you died? Well, he says, um, think about what death means. Oh, I'm, I'm saying, think about what death means. First of all, if you're dead, one of the first things that you, you, you know is that there is no action going on. If a battery is dead, for example, it won't do anything. You can stick it into your computer or uh, some implement or whatever, and it won't do anything for you. Actually, this battery in here is dying, so if it, the screen goes blank halfway through, you know, pray a little bit harder, because uh, I've managed to leave the adapter for this computer at West Down Gospel Hall, and until I get back to West Down Gospel Hall, this is just getting less and less lively as it goes by. It, we should have enough to get through this morning. Okay, it's still got half of the battery there, but I can't charge it up again. And when it goes, it's gone. There'll be no action from this computer anymore until I charge it up. That's what death means, isn't it? We sometimes talk about telephones being dead. The line goes dead to you. And that means no communication. <laughs> death means that you cannot communicate with the world in which you used to live. An example I often use in schools, which is a silly one, is if, you know, suppose I really got fed up with this guitarist here this morning. He's played some terrible wrong chords. I cannot stand him watching me any longer. And suddenly, I go berserk, I leap out of the pulpit, strangle him to death, and there is his dead body is lying on the, on the floor. And you come up and try and have a conversation with him. Hello, hi, how are you doing? What are you doing down there? Don't look very healthy. What would you like for your lunch? You can say what you like to him, but he's never going to sit up. What's the matter with you? He's never going to sit up and say, because I'm dead, stupid. You know, it doesn't happen. Dead people don't communicate. I'm not going to do it, don't worry. No. <laughs> Looking a little bit worried down there. But um, death means no action, no communication. Also, it means no responsibility. And um, it means that once you're dead, you cannot be held responsible for anything that you might have been held responsible for before. Um, there's a bizarre story from 897 AD, which is why I put that picture there. That is a guy who was Pope, and I can't write at this particular mo moment remember what his name was, Frumentius or something like that. Anyway, he died, and another fellow called Stephen II was appointed Pope. And Stephen II actually held a thing called the Cadaver Synod in 897 AD. His, the previous Pope had been dead for seven months at this point, and uh, Stephen II couldn't be Pope until he had this guy excommunicated because the previous Pope had made Stephen a bishop and that meant he couldn't be Pope unless that was a wrong order. It was all church politics and stuff. Don't worry about it. The main thing is he asked theologians to work out how long somebody can be held responsible for his deeds for after death. And they said seven months. And he said, seven months? He's been dead seven months. So they dug him up again. And they put this corpse through a legal trial. This is a famous French uh, painting of, of what it must have looked like. They gave him somebody to represent him. That's what the lawyer in the middle is doing. And the cadaver didn't actually say much. He just sat there, not feeling well. And, but they actually sat, uh, sat him up there on the throne, stinking away, so they never got too close to him, until they'd finished by condemning him. And then they took his bones and burned them. A bit of a performance. I mean, obviously, a corpse, somebody who has died, cannot be responsible. And when you're dead, there's no action on your part, and there's no communication from you, and you're not responsible for anything. 
Now, what Romans 5 says is, as far as sin is concerned, a Christian has died. It has no further claim on you. Every time the devil comes along and says, I want to tempt you, and I've got a temptation, which is something that you always go for. You know what you're like. You've got a bad temper, and I really want you to let rip. You're lustful, and I want you to look at that girl across there. You know, all of these kind of things. Uh, uh, every time the devil comes, from somebody who is dead, there is no communication. I'm not even going to answer you. There is no action. You don't do what he says. <laughs> and, and, and all of these things are true. You are not responsible to sin any longer because you're dead. And that's what these first verses are saying here. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And it talks about baptism. And if you're a Christian but you've not been baptised, you, you can see in these verses that Paul thinks baptism is kind of an integral part of what should happen to you once you've accepted Christ. Because baptism is a, a matter of saying, I'm identified with Jesus. I belong with him. And the, the, the way they baptise people in, in this church is that they, 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 they take people who believe in Jesus down into the water. Because uh, there's a big pool of water down here and uh, you, you can get right into it. It's like a sort of mini swimming pool. You wouldn't have much fun trying to swim around it. It's not big enough. But uh, it's big enough to cover you. You go down into the water and then you go under the water and you come up the other side. Why is that? Water for the Jews was kind of like a symbol of death sometimes. Not always, but sometimes. Uh, they were farmers, they were agriculturalists, not many of them were sailors, and the sea gets a very bad press in the Bible. You know, it says in the book of Revelation that when we get to the heavenly city, there will be no more sea. And you might be thinking, oh, that's a shame, I was looking forward to going down to the seaside in heaven, must be a brilliant beach there. No more sea, what's this about? And actually, the sea is a symbol there for the wickedness and evil of the world that messes up our civilization right now. So um, there's a verse in Psalms that talks about the, the wicked are like the troubled sea whose waters cast up mire and dirt. And basically the, the um, Israelites never felt very happy on the sea. They preferred solid ground beneath their feet. So the sea became a symbol of death. And going down into the water is a symbol of dying with Jesus, identifying with him in his death. When Jesus died on the cross, that was like my death. He paid the price for all the sin that I've committed, and so I claim that I identify with him. But if something goes very wrong, they don't leave you down there. You come up out the outside, and that's like rising into newness of life. Uh, you've died, and now you rise again. And you show that by that symbolic action. This is what's happened to me inside. You can't see it inside, but you can see my baptism. So if you're a Christian, you've not been baptised yet, think about it seriously, because it really is part of the package. Anyway, what Paul says is, don't you know that all of us who are baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were buried with him through baptism into death. As you go under the water, it's like being buried, Jesus going into the tomb for you, being died to pay the price for you, and then you rise again just as he rose again to show that sin and death were defeated forever. Just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we may live a new life. There's a great story from the Napoleonic Wars about um, a farmer who was called up to fight in the French army. And uh, it was bad news because he had a wife and seven children and he thought she's never going to survive if I leave her on her own during the farm by herself. And so that night he went down to the village pub and he was talking to a friend of his and said, look, I don't know what I'm going to do. I've got these call-up papers. I've got to go and fight in the army. And his friend said, I don't know what you should do. You should let me have the papers, and I'll go instead of you. I'm not married, 
and I have got no dependents, so I will go to the, 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 the army and say I am you and fight in your place. And so he did. And you know what? In the very first battle, that guy was killed. And then, because French bureaucracy was terrible in those days too, <laughs> a second set of call-up papers arrived at the farm. And it must have been quite funny. The farmer took the papers, went down to the recruiting office in the local town, Sergeant Major sitting behind a desk signing people up. Ah, I see you've got your papers. Come on, just give me your name and I'll sign you up. And the farmer said, I cannot join the army because I am dead. I've heard some excuses in my time, but that's the stupidest one I've ever heard. Don't be silly. Come on, just sign your name here. He said, listen, I died in the last battle. You can see for yourself. And he looked up the list of casualties for the last battle. Oh, yep, name's there. And he started looking at him a bit weirdly. Who are you, really? You are... You are a real human being, aren't you? <laughs> and uh, it, the farmer explained what had happened, and he didn't know what to do about it. So he asked his commanding officer, and his commanding officer didn't know what to do about it, so he asked his commanding officer, and it went all the way back to Napoleon. And Napoleon said, if this man's friend died in his place, he is dead. <laughs> and the French army has no claim on him any longer. Now that's what's happened to you and me if you're a Christian. Because your friend has died in your place, you have been set free. And when sin is concerned, you just don't respond. You might say, well, it doesn't feel like that, you know, because I feel still that evil has a, quite a grip on my life, and, and sometimes in places. And so Paul goes on to a second thing, which is your resurrection. If we've died with Christ, then we're going to be raised with him. So, verse 5. If we have been united with him like this in his death, he says, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, so that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, now if we die with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the way he, the life he lives, he lives to God. Jesus has risen in a new life of power and glory. When he rose, it showed that death had been defeated forever, that sin no longer had the mastery over human life because a human life had been given on the cross so that all human beings could be set free. And so Paul says, we're going to rise again. And uh, it's important because you know that one of the days you're going to be in the presence of Jesus, that you live your life as you should down here. Yes, if you have accepted Jesus and uh, uh, that you, 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 you're absolutely certain you're a, a member of the kingdom of heaven, then you can theoretically do whatever you like. But one of these days you're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, as it says in the New Testament. And there you will be rewarded for those things you have done down here. And some people, says Paul to the Corinthians, will not get very much because they'll be saved. But it'll be like being rescued, like somebody escaping from a burning building. And uh, he says, when they get there, their work will be revealed with fire. And the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but will yet be saved even though only as one escaping through the flames. So you can turn up in heaven, having built on the foundation of Jesus' death, and with gold and silver and precious stones, as Corinthians puts it, you're doing all kinds of stuff 
for God, which fit your life together, bless other people, and bring glory to him. And then you'll receive quite a reward when you get there. Or you can live your life for yourself. Completely ignore the new life you've been given. Will you get to heaven? Yes, you will. But you'll be like somebody coming over the border from uh, Ukraine to Moldova or Poland or wherever, having left all of their possessions behind as someone escaping from flames. And you'll stand there empty-handed before the Lord, who will look at you sorrowfully and say, there is so much I could have done with your life, but you didn't let me. There is so much treasure you could be bringing with you into the kingdom of heaven, but you've got nothing. You'll still be in heaven. That'll be a lot better than being anywhere else. But you won't have the reward you could have otherwise. We'll probably say more about the, the reward in another week, what it is and so on and so forth. But that's basically it. Now, notice, Paul is saying here, you will receive this resurrection one day. It's still future. It's not there yet. Yes, you're alive in Christ right now, but the resurrection is still to come. See, the tenses that are used, for instance, in verse 5. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also have been united with him in his... No, it says we will be united with him in his resurrection. That's still in the future. And verse 8, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. The resurrection isn't complete. There's a lot more to come. And in a sense, your life now, your Christian life, is like very, very early on Easter morning. When the first stirrings of life happened, just before God blasted Jesus out of the grave into that new resurrection life, he was already alive, but he wasn't resurrected. And suddenly, whoosh, the most great miracle in history happened and Jesus was uh, in his resurrection. You're just before that. You're alive in Christ. Says you're, not, you're dead to sin, but you're alive to God. But you're not as alive as you will be one of these days when your resurrection is complete. And so we will certainly be with him in his resurrection. It was important for Paul to put it this way because he, people in his day were getting it all wrong about the resurrection. And uh, uh, he talks in Philippians chapter 3, if you come in the evenings, we'll get to this passage one of these days, uh, about his ambitions for his own Christian life. And he says, I want somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. I'm not there yet, but one of these days I will be. And the reason I keep on going for God is I want that resurrection to be as glorious as it possibly can. And he talks in 2 Timothy about people who are misleading the church, uh, two guys who've set themselves up as Christian teachers, and they're actually teaching the wrong thing. And he says that those people have wandered from the truth, and they say that the resurrection has already come. <laughs> in other words, they're saying, that's it, you've got everything that God's got to give you, there's no more, don't think about heaven or whatever, that's just fairy tales and fantasies, you've got everything God's going to give you right now. Oh, your granny's died, oh, what a shame, well, <laughs> you know, she'll miss out on heaven. You know, um, because the resurrection has already taken place. Everything has happened. Paul says, no, you will see something much more glorious happen to your life in future. And because you are going there, because that is going to happen, that is another reason for not living a lifestyle of sin. You've got to live for God and the things that he wants. But the third thing he says is, it's important that you make those choices. God is not going to do this automatically in you. Um, John Piper, the American preacher whom I often quote sometimes to disagree with him but this time I agree with him uh, says this about this passage notice carefully Paul does not draw the conclusion of a mechanical or automatic obedience from our death and resurrection with Christ 
He does not sin. Since you all died to sin in Christ and are alive to God in him, there is no need for me to command you to do anything and there is no act of obedience involved. There is only an automatic mechanical outcome of sinlessness. You died to sin, so you automatically don't sin. Mm -hmm. You're alive to God, so you automatically serve God. No need for commands. And Piper says, no, that is not what he says. Instead, he says, you died, so consider yourself dead. You are alive, so consider yourselves alive to God. You are, so now become what you are. God has already given you that death with Jesus and identification with him. God has already given you that new life inside, what makes you alive to him, accessed by faith through grace, into this grace wherein we stand. And all of that will already happen to you, but you need to choose to live that thing. Because if you do, then you will find a supernatural power inside you that you never had before that will help to keep you right instead of wrong. You will still slip from time to time. But you take it straight into the presence of God, you confess it, and then you move on. And all the way you go through life, sin will be trying to slip you up, trip you up. And sometimes, because you're only human, that will happen to you. But you don't let that become the way you normally live. You let God forgive you, wipe you clean, and start you off again. And his grace will take you through situation after situation. And your lifestyle will gradually change until people look at you and see a glimpse of Jesus. That's what's supposed to happen. And so Paul says there are choices that we have to make. Let's face it, God does not turn you into an automaton. He doesn't want you to be a robot. Some people get the idea that when you become a Christian, somehow God's grace comes into you from above and says, your eyes go all shiny and you go, good works, good works, I must do good works. This is what God has created me for. God doesn't want you to be some sort of mechanical toy. He wants you to be fully human and make your own choices. The devil's not like that. I've had to work sometimes with people who have been what in the Bible is, 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 is called demonized, possessed by demons. And it doesn't happen very often, but when the evil side of reality gets hold of a person's life, they're, not, they're, they're pretty helpless people. They can't do anything to help themselves. And this evil power will sometimes take hold of them and just make them do things they, 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 they never normally did. I, I was dealing with a man a couple of years ago uh, at, uh, in, in our church, uh, a, a fellow who came asking for help. and. Uh, you know, sometimes people like that have mental problems, but sometimes it's deeper than that. Sometimes it's, it's demonic. And when it is, then you just have to, there's no recipe you can apply or anything like that. You simply have to pray the grace of God into that situation. I remember that man throwing himself around the room. And most of the time he'd be talking quite rationally. And suddenly this thing would take hold of him again, throw him a, a bit more. And we just prayed steadily until he eventually said, oh, I think it's gone. And it was perfectly normal and rational and reasonable again. That's the trouble. The power of evil does not allow you any choice. <laughs> it just takes over. Once it's got an inroad into your life in that way, it's horrendous. And as I say, it doesn't happen to many people. So don't worry that that's going to happen. I remember when the film The Exorcist first came out, having to counsel all sorts of teenagers who went to see the film, most of them lying wildly about how old they were just to get in. And then they saw this thing, oh, so I can be walking along the street and the devil suddenly comes into me and throws me around and my head will be revolving and green stuff will come out of my ears. No, no, it doesn't happen, doesn't happen. But when the, you see the power of evil in action, it does not leave people much opportunity. When you see God in action, he wants you to use your own mind and will and emotions to be a full human being. So he doesn't take the power of decision away from you. He wants you to apply it. So what does he actually say about choices? And this is the last thing we'll do this morning, honestly. <laughs> the final thing is this. 
First of all, he talks about the way you see... Well, let's read the verses, shall we? And I'll, I'll tell you what I think they mean. So this is verses 11 to 14 here. In the same way, he says, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been bought from death to life. And offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master, because you're not under law, you're under grace. What's he saying there? Well, I think he's saying you have choice to make in three different areas of your life. First of all, in the way you see yourself. He says, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. In other words, you see yourself as someone who is dead as far as that old life is concerned but living with a new consciousness of God being there. Now, there are some Christians who are defeated all the time because they've got this inner voice in their head going round and round saying, you're defeated, you're wicked, you're awful, you're worthless. God must be really fed up with you this week. You can't do anything. You're so powerless. You're so weak. You always do the same thing again and again. Don't look at yourself that way, says Paul. Have the courage to believe that God has made you dead to sin. You don't respond to it any longer. And God has made you alive to himself. Count yourself that way. Because until you see yourself as God sees you, as a worthwhile person who's been wiped clean by the blood of Jesus, who's a child of God and a member of his family, until you've got the confidence to claim all of that and say, this is who I am, you are going nowhere. The second thing is the way you control yourself. There will still be times when the devil comes along with temptations which are pretty difficult to resist, either because something in you just responds to that, you know, it's a flaw in your nature that just makes you fall and fall again and again, or maybe because you don't notice that it is actually sinful. There are lots of things we might do that we think are right at the time, and afterwards we think, oh, why did I ever do that? That was so completely wrong. So the devil will try to trip you up any way you can. And sometimes when you know you're in a situation where you can go the right way or the wrong way, then you have to make the right choice. Do not let sin reign in your body, uh, says Paul. The stimuli you surround yourself with, that's important, isn't it? If you're a boy with a pornography problem or something like that, and you don't plaster pictures from the magazines or from the internet all over the walls of your room. Because every time you look at them, you're going to be led into the wrong kind of behavior. If you're somebody who's got uh, a really explosive temper, you don't let yourself get into situations of confrontation. When you see something building up inside you, and you think any second now my, my shirt is going to split and my skin is going to go green, then you get out of it. You go away. You don't carry on. And sometimes you just have to run away from the stimulus. So the way you control yourself is important. And the third thing is the way you give yourself. What do I mean by that? Well, Paul says you're offering yourself, your body, the parts of your body, to one thing or another, the choices you make, the way you spend your money, the people you spend your time with, all that kind of thing, dictates what you think your body is for. And what he says is, is, is do not offer your body parts to sin, but offer yourself to God. And so many Christians find it's useful when they wake up in the morning to think about the parts of the body and say, look, Lord, today I want to serve you. So my feet here, <laughs> help them go the right way. Help them to go to the places that you would approve of and not the places where they're going to be in danger. These hands, 
Help them do your work today. Use them creatively to do whatever they can for your kingdom and for you and to bless other people. Don't let me use these in the wrong way. My brain, control the things I think about. And so you can go on. Um, but it's not just a case of praying it in the morning. It's a case of making it work in life, isn't it? Offer your body and the parts of your body, says Paul, to God as instruments of righteousness. Things that will bring about his righteousness, his goodness, his peace, his equality, his release from captivity into other people's lives, into your own, right through the world. Use your body in that way. And when you do that, then you will know where you belong. D.L. Moody was a great uh, 19th century preacher and evangelist. And he uh, was... Um, at his peak, just a few years after uh, emancipation from slavery had been brought through by Abraham Lincoln in the United States. And when he was talking about this passage once, he talked about um, an old Negro lady in the South, or a black lady who um, wasn't sure what had actually happened. And uh, this is the way that he talked about her. She was thinking like this. Now, is I free or been I not? When I go to my old master, he says I ain't free. When I go to my own people, they say I is, and I don't know whether I'm free or not. Some people told me that Abraham Lincoln signed a proclamation, but Master says he didn't. He didn't have any right to. And you see, she was caught in a no-man's land between freedom and slavery. She was really free, but the people around her wanted to keep her oppressed. No, 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 you're still a slave. You're still in prison. You can't get out of here. You have to serve me as long as you live. Now, there are evil forces in your mind and heart that will say that to you constantly. But you have to believe that the Emancipation Proclamation has been made and you are free and you can live a life on a new level by the power of God put in you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ whose resurrection in you will one of these days be absolutely complete. And because of the fact that you're dead to sin, because of the fact that you're risen to, to walk in newness of life in Christ and one day that resurrection will be complete and because you make the right choices every time you are able to live on a different level. Sin shall not be your master, says Paul at the end of this passage, because you're not under law, you're under grace. Let's pray for a second, shall we? So, Heavenly Father, thank you for Romans 6 and the message of freedom and hope that it brings to, to lives that feel compromised and defeated and powerless. Thank you for the fact that in Christ there is a new freedom, a new way, a new hope. And help us all who've trusted you and, and know the power of Jesus in our lives to live in that power and be so transformed as people. Others around us notice we've got something that they don't. We want those people to be set free too. So help us talk to them, not just with words, but in the very things we do, to show a love and a freedom and a reality and a, a, a hope that Jesus has instilled in us as a miracle. And Father, if any of us don't know about that, give us the courage, please, to talk to somebody whom we know to be a Christian at the end of the service and find out for ourselves how the Emancipation Proclamation can change our lives too. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.